before we get started on our UCD 43, symptom number 39, vaginitis, vaginosis, and vaginal discharge, uh, we are going to give you the goals and objectives for this podcast, and there are five of them today. Number one, to understand key historical information needed from any patient presenting with vaginal symptoms. Two, to be able to generate a differential diagnosis for the most common causes of vaginitis and vaginosis, as well as a list of can't-miss diagnosis in patients presenting with vaginal symptoms. Three, to be familiar with components of the physical examination that are potentially helpful in narrowing the differential diagnosis for vaginitis and vaginosis. Four, to know the common office-based tests that can easily be performed to further elucidate the etiologies of vaginitis. And five, to understand the indications for additional lab testing of patients with vaginitis not diagnosed based upon history, exam, and routine office-based testing. I'd also like to refer you to two articles that are excellent reviews on this topic. The first one was in American Family Physician in 2018, and I'm pulling it out here so I can properly reference it. It is by Heather L. Paladine and Ermi Desai. Uh, again, American Family Physician 2018, and it's an excellent review called Vaginitis, Diagnosis, and Treatment. The second article I wanted to refer you to today is uh, if you're more interested in learning not just about the symptoms that you can see with vaginal complaints, but also with the literature, the data behind both the history and the physical exam. Uh, Evaluation of Vaginal Complaints is an article that was published in JAMA's Rational Clinical Exam, one of my favorite series in the literature. And this came out in March 17th, 2004, and it's by Anderson, Klink, and Kohresen. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. Anyway, both these articles are very informative and helpful, particularly the latter one if you're interested in the evidence. Thanks very much. Have a great day, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Jocelyn Glassberg, one of our two OBGYN clerkship directors at UC Davis School of Medicine, and we're going to be exploring UCD 43 symptom number 39, vaginal discharge, vaginitis, vaginosis. Jocelyn, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and trained in residency, as well as what your roles are here at UC Davis at this time? Sure. I grew up in a very small town in Texas near the Louisiana border and near the coast called Groves. I went to college at Southwestern University, which is in Georgetown outside of Austin. It's a small liberal arts school. Loved it. Figured out I liked medicine. Went to med school at Texas A&M, and then I went on to do residency at Texas A&M as well. I worked in private practice for five years before I came here. When I came here, I was really interested in educational roles, so my roles at UC Davis include being co-clerkship director with Dr. Howe. I also work in the faculty and professional development office for clinician support, essentially. And um, what do you like to do outside of uh, education and your clinical practice for fun? So part of the thing that I love about California is all the outdoor activities that are offered. I really enjoy hiking. I have four kids who are really active as well, so it's fun to get them out in nature, appreciating nature, and I love to travel. And how old are your kids? 
Oh, they span from ninth grade to first grade. So I have 14, 12, 9, 6. Oh, wow. Hmm. That's a handful. Yes. Uh, um, and, and getting back to your practice, I didn't know you were in private practice for five years before mm-hmm. you came here. Were you, were you predominantly doing OB versus GYN, or was just the mix? It was probably 75 25. 75% um, OB. 75% OB, 25% GYN would be my guess, because um, I was one of the only young females in the practice, and so OB patients tended to request to have a young female provider. Got it. Oh, interesting. Well, that makes you the perfect person to interview. Not only are you an academician, but you also have that. I think private practice is such a good thing to do to get a sense of the rest of the world outside of academia. So So true. It's different outside of the ivory tower. Yes, yes. I've had that experience as well. All right. So before we get started on our case today, I wanted to clarify a few things. First of all, I wanted to clarify something about this, the 39th uh, UCD 43 chief complaint. You know, when we first figured this out, you know, the approach and the clinical curriculum, there were some curriculum committee members that questioned why we weren't using a disease-based list of things a student should know by the time they graduated. And my argument for going with the chief complaint approach was that I think it is far more patient-centered, i.e. patients generally don't come into the emergency department or clinics stating, hey doctor, I'm having an acute ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, they come in saying, doctor, I have terrible chest pain, uh, or doctor, I have terrible diarrhea, not doctor, I have viral gastroenteritis. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that the chief complaint we're going to talk about today is listed under the UCD 43 as vaginal discharge slash vaginitis. Um, and I'm just wondering, did we go off the tracks with that, or is that the the most frequent symptom that will describe the diagnosis or diagnoses that it leads to? I do think with vaginal complaints, patients do come in often saying, I'm having vaginal discharge or I'm having vulvar itching. And honestly, sometimes they don't even get the anatomy part of those right. But there is probably half of my patients come in and say, I have a yeast infection or I think I have bacterial vaginosis or BV because women have had this in the past before and actually are pretty certain they know their own diagnosis a lot of the time when they come in. Mm-hmm. And are they usually right in that situation? or More than half the time they're right. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So you think we're okay leaving it as it is? I think it it's is? okay as it is. Okay. I just wanted to get that clarified because it's a, I guess it's a living document, the UCD 43, and we're hoping that other medical schools pick it up mm-hmm. and use it and we want it to be as useful as possible. The other question I had for you was the differentiation between vaginitis and vaginosis. So this was something that was drilled into me in my residency, because itis in any medical complaint should indicate the presence of inflammation and some discomfort associated with inflammation and inflammatory components. Vaginitis is more commonly caused by either a STI, or a sexually transmitted infection, or a yeast infection, because those do cause tissue inflammation. Vaginosis can still have the symptom of vaginal discharge, but it usually doesn't have the discomfort complaints associated with it. Okay, and and those complaints, just to be specific, are are would be, you know, irritation, itching, maybe, and and then things like abnormal odor and you know actual discharge. Correct. Okay, 
just so we're on the same page when we say vaginal symptoms. I guess before I give you the case, I also wanted to ask you about your, you know, for a patient presenting with a chief complaint of any of these vaginal symptoms, like usually I would imagine the nurse has written that on the, mm -hmm. the patient's chart or put it in the EMR if, if you have an EMR, which we do. But before you even step into the exam room to take your history, how are you organizing your approach to that chief complaint of any of those symptoms that may be already sounding like vaginitis or vagina vaginosis? So a lot of what I want to know is how long have you been noticing whichever one of those complaints it is, if it's itching, if it's discharge. If it's discharge, is there an odor or a color associated with it? I also want to know about the patient's sexual history. So has there been any new partners? Is there instability in partners? Um, or has there um, been any exposures that they're aware of? Because sometimes patients will come in and say, I know that I've been exposed to X, Y, or Z. If they've done any self-treatment at home or other online remedies, of which there are many. So if anyone has done any of those things, I want to know if they've had infections like this in the past and how they were treated. Is this a new issue for them or has this been a chronic issue that's never been adequately treated over several months? Because all of those will lend itself to different diagnoses. Got it. Okay. Excellent. And, and as you go in the room, are you thinking, you know, because one of the things we've been stressing with the UCD43 is the common things are common. Absolutely. approach rather than like some massive schema of everything it could be from outside to in and whatever. Common things are common. So when someone comes in telling me that they have vaginal discharge, I am most commonly thinking it's likely going to be yeast, bacterial vaginosis, or trichomonas in the off cases. Okay. And of those, which would be the most common? Bacterial vaginosis is probably the most common that we see. Uh-huh. What percent, roughly, of patients? About half. Okay. And then how about uh, vulvovaginal candidiasis? 30-ish eh, percent, 30 to 40 percent. And trichomonas? Much less, like 10 to 25. Okay. And then how about causes other than those three things? So causes other than those three things, again, will depend on exposure and age. Um, so in a young person who has multiple sexual exposures, you'd be more worried about gonorrhea or chlamydia diseases, which often in women do not present with discharge. Other things that I would worry about in an older population if they have persistent itching or burning would be the more rare skin disorder type issues, such as lichen sclerosis at atrophicus or a vulvar squamous cell carcinoma, otherwise known in our field as VIN, vulvar intraepithelial neoplasias that can be precancerous or cancerous. Mm -hmm. And when you're thinking older women, and not to insult part of our listening audience, but wh where are you drawing that line? Non-reproductive age. So I'm drawing okay. that line not at older people, which I would think of as like 80s and above, but more postmenopausal women, uh -huh. which can be very, very depending on if you had, for instance, a surgical procedure for menopause, etc. Okay, great. All right. Well, I think uh, you ready for our case? I am ready. All right. This is a 24-year-old woman who presents to Urgent Care Clinic with a chief complaint that she has a vaginal discharge with a somewhat fishy odor for the past three weeks. The discharge that she has is thin, um, light, and she describes it as gray in color. And she denies dysuria, itching, uh, dyspareunia, or painful intercourse, and says her last menstrual period was two weeks ago and was normal. She's never been pregnant, has no medical problems, and only takes oral contraceptives for medications. She's sexually active with her boyfriend, 
and she notes that after sex, the odor seems to get worse. And of note, she's been with this boyfriend for over a year, so as I guess you're, you used the word unstable um, relationship. It's a very stable relationship. So have you ever seen a patient like this before? Every week. <laughs> okay. All the time. Okay, so how does the history help you here? So what's really helpful is that the patient comes in saying that she's having a discharge that's not painful, so she's not having dysuria, itching, or dyspronia, and that she notes this fishy odor that it's been happening for about three weeks. So all of that is really helpful information, and the fact that it seems to get worse after intercourse is also helpful information to me. Those things point more towards a bacterial vaginosis diagnosis. For instance, if someone was coming in with vulval vaginal candidiasis, almost always there's itching associated. And the classic discharge is a cottage cheese discharge. Oftentimes people will just complain of the itching and the irritation. Um, for trichomonas, the discharge tends to be really profound and yellow and watery, almost like you're losing urine. Hmm. With I'm sorry, with vaginosis. With trichomonas. With trichomonas. With trichomonas, oh, okay. it tends to be really profound. Oh, that's a really great teaching point. Mm -hmm. So with bacterial vaginosis, is what actually what's the pathophysiology behind that? So the vagina in its happy state should be like a self-cleaning oven with lactobacilli as one of our prominent bacteria in a well-estrogenized environment. So the pH of the vagina should be somewhere around four and a half. That's a normal pH. Um, however, if you know there's multiple bacteria that live in the vaginal canal, if those other bacteria, the anaerobes, etc., start to overgrow the lactobacillus, the pH will change. In the case of bacterial vaginosis, that pH will become more basic and then that gives those bacteria the environment to grow better, and then you end up with your symptoms, the discharge, the mm -hmm. foul odor. Hmm. And is it always Gardnerella vaginalis? Oh, no, started? no, 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 no. There's a whole group of friends that like to give there. So um, in the vaginal flora, if you just cultured vaginal flora, you'd be very likely to get Gardnerella, E. coli, group B strep, Mycoplasma species, Candida. All of that is part of the flora. It's just that they usually live in harmony with Lactobacillus as the prominent. Oh, I see. So the harmony is thrown off and then an anaerobe overgrows. Correct. And so is that the source of the fishy odor? It is the fact that we have an overgrowth of those bacteria that eventually gives you the odor, yes. Oh, okay. And, and uh, in the history that this patient gives of it, the odor getting worse after sex, what's, is that? So it, it turns out that semen is basic. Mm -hmm. And so after sex, Basic as in an alkaline. Basic <laughs> as in an alkaline. Yes, sorry to clarify. Basic as in an alkaline, a pH greater than the vaginal pH. Uh -huh. And so you already have tipped the pH scales a little bit in heterosexual intercourse with ejaculation. And in someone who's already leaning towards the bacterial vaginosis picture, you just helped that bacteria grow a little better. Oh, okay. Interesting. Huh. And, and you mentioned the often curd-like, you know, cottage cheese-like discharge. How useful of a historical or observation, if you're doing your exam, is that? You know, if someone comes in saying that they have curd-like discharge and itching, that really is relatively sensitive and specific for yeast. Mm -hmm. Are you done if you hear no. that? No. Okay. No, you are not done. <laughs> okay. You're not done. You should still examine the patient, and I would always recommend doing a wet mount and seeing what you see. Okay. But it's not perfect. Okay. Um, excellent. 
We talked about the three most common causes of uh, vaginitis and vaginosis. And it's, it sounds like you're thinking right now this patient probably has bacterial vaginosis based on the history alone. Yes, it's a pretty classic history for bacterial vaginosis, but I would still do a physical exam and okay. some tests. Okay. We can't jump to a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis at this point. I mean, there were 85 million done in the United States last year. What's one more? Um, I'm... It's a, you just hit the so button on the EMR. <laughs> it's so true. It does. Um, a CT scan is not going to show you vaginosis or vaginitis. There will be no specific findings to it. So that's the first reason not to do it. And the second reason to do it is really it's expensive. It's We already said it was low yield. It's not going to give you a diagnosis. You just radiated a patient unnecessarily, which mm-hmm. I would also argue is not in our best interest. Okay. That's my favorite question to ask on these <laughs> UCD 43 things because it seems like... Gynecologists almost never, outside of oncological diagnoses, CT is not one of our preferred methods of imaging anyway. We prefer ultrasound. Oh, another reason to go into OBGYN. <laughs> Okay, so let me give you her exam. Her blood pressure was 108 over 58, which is, she says, normal for her. Pulse 72, respiratory rate rate 14, and she was afebrile at 36.8 degrees centigrade. She appeared to be in good health and in no distress. Uh, Her abdominal exam showed um, skipping the heart and lung. I don't know if you would do that in this situation. Maybe, probably not, especially in urgent care where you're focusing on her main problems. But her abdominal exam, uh, bowel sounds were present and her abdomen was soft and non-tender without appreciable organomegaly. Uh, pelvic exam showed normal external genitalia without signs of irritation or other lesions. And there was a grayish white vaginal discharge that did have a slightly fishy odor that was present. And again, just to reiterate, the vagina was not inflamed appearing. The cervix appeared normal without erythema or discharge. And on bimanual exam, there were no masses or cervical motion tenderness. So what are you thinking at this point based on your exam? That's a really reassuring exam except for the vaginal discharge. And really, you described an exam that didn't show any inflammation or pain. So you would think it was not going to be an inflammatory condition. That lends itself much more to bacterial vaginosis. The fishy odor also lends itself more towards bacterial vaginosis. But I would like to know, did you do a whiff test? Did you hear, did you perform a wet mount? Did you do KOH and saline on that wet mount? And what did you find? Okay. Embarrassed to say a pH was not checked. Um, but do you use the pH a lot? So it depends on what's available in your clinic. There's mm-hmm. in the ER here, I would not do a pH because we don't readily have it just sitting around. In my mm-hmm. office, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And what would you, if you're still going down the, I'm thinking this sounds like bacterial vaginosis and the exam is consistent with, what would the pH be then? It would be on the more basic side. So above 4.5 for the vagina. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm embarrassed to say we didn't check a, a pH. Um, it's not but, available often in urgent care, so that's fine. But we did do that with the 10% KOH, uh, check the WIF test. And maybe you could explain what that is before I give you the result. So when we do a wet mount gynecologically, you immediately then put the swab of your Q-tip either into saline or into KOH. When you put into KOH, if there's bacterial vaginosis present, there's a very strong amine odor that comes pretty quick. So it smells more intensely fishy at that moment. Okay, so you sort of bring that out with the Mm -hmm. KOH. Interesting. Do you know the mechanism for that? 
Off the top of my head, no. That's okay. <laughs> I always say if I ask the question, somebody doesn't know, one of my guests, I'll look it up and <laughs> figure it out. Okay, so uh, actually the, uh, the whiff test was positive. As I said, the pH wasn't checked. And when uh, the KOH uh, was done, uh, it did not show branching hyphae of vulvovaginal candidiasis. Uh, on the wet mount, uh, clue cells were seen, and they were estimated to be around 40% um, of the cells. So can you explain what clue cells are to our listeners? A clue cell is a vaginal epithelial cell that essentially is speckled, and it's speckled because it's covered in little bacteria. And not to push you on this one, why, do they, why does that happen? What a good question. And I can look it up. I don't know. I know what I'm looking for, but honestly, I'm not sure. It's been like 25 years since I've worried about this mechanism, truthfully. Um, so I'm not sure why they end up speckled that way, but uh-huh. in the environment where there's, again, an overgrowth of the less good vaginal bacteria mm-hmm. and bacterial vaginosis, you do end up with a profound amount of clue cells. Uh, okay. um, again, there's some clue cells always in the vagina because there's some of those bacteria always in the vagina. But when you have 40% clue cells and a whiff test, I'm much more worried about bacterial vaginosis. And what's the cutoff we're looking for? More than 20% of clue cells on a wet mount would be what we were looking for. Oh, that is so interesting. I was wondering why there was the cutoff, but if there's already clue cells there normally, that Mm -hmm. totally makes sense. Got it. So we have, um, we don't know the pH, we have a positive whiff test, we have clue cells greater than 20%, and this sort of homogeneous sort of like grayish discharge. Does that clinch the diagnosis for you? It actually does based on AMCELL's criteria, because you only need three of the four of the things that you just described. So um, we did not do a pH, but if the pH was more than 4.5, it would have been part of it. But you did describe a whiff test, clue cells more than 20%, and a thin homogeneous discharge. And three out of four of those actually do give the clinical diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis. Okay. Are there any tests you would do beyond that? Or would you move to treatment? And if, like, say you only got two of four of the AMSL criteria, because it's three of the four Mm -hmm. locks the diagnosis. Um, If you only got, say, two of the four, is there another test you could do? Um, You could do commercial-based BV testing, which are like point-of-care tests that take away the microscopy, right? Because not all clinicians are great with microscopy. So maybe if I wasn't sure how much of the clue cells I was seeing, or if there was scant cellularity on the slide and I was worried I was missing something, I might choose to do one of those point-of-care tests. Hmm. And in the point-of-care tests, point-of-care meaning you get the result immediately on the spot? It's within 10 minutes. Okay. Do you, you don't have to send it to the lab? No. It's a, it's usually done in clinic, and it's mm-hmm. based on a chemical reactant, so very similar to, like, a strep throat test. But Oh, interesting. But in the vagina. Why? So to save time, why wouldn't you do that instead of the microscopy? Um, so from a microscopy perspective, either way, you're going to be doing an exam on the patient. Mm-hmm. Microscopy and a wet mount literally take me two minutes to do, so why would I make them sit there for, Got like, it. seven to ten waiting on that result if mm-hmm. I thought I could just do it quickly? Okay, excellent. That makes sense. But if I wasn't someone comfortable with microscopy, it's not a bad alternative. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and hopefully, so you guys train your residents to be good at microscopy. Correct. I think it, okay. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> excellent. Because it is, I mean, it's always more expensive to do a point of care test like sure. that than just slides mm-hmm. and saline and KOH, which are all relatively cheap. Yeah, and you got to 
figure not everywhere has the point of care test too. It seems like we've got the diagnosis that this woman has bacterial vaginosis. If she had, if she didn't have that, and say she she was presenting with vulvovaginal candidiasis, which is as you mentioned the next most common cause of vaginitis. what would you have expected to have heard from her? I think you've mentioned a few of the things already. So usually someone with vulvovaginal candidiasis will come in saying they have itching, burning, or irritation. Oftentimes that's associated with a thicker white discharge, which is in the books called the cottage cheese discharge. Mm-hmm. I have yet to have a patient walk in the door telling me they have cottage cheese discharge. Just saying. <laughs> um, but oftentimes it'll be that itching, burning. A lot of times they have dysuria because the urethra is also inflamed mm. and irritated by the yeast, so they have not the urinary tract symptoms of urgency and frequency, but that it actually physically burns on the outside when they're peeing. Um, so all of those things are more common, including dyspareunia. If someone has really a raging yeast infection, um, so those are the things that I would think about from a symptom perspective. As far as from uh, what I would expect to see on exam, the patients who are coming and saying that they have a yeast infection, which I said, you know, I do have patients who walk through the door and they're like, I have a yeast infection, I've done this before. Like, I totally know this is it, is what it is. Their likelihood ratio is 3.3. So, and as we said, the symptoms that they'll come with will be different. On my exam, I would expect to see more of a thicker white discharge as opposed to that thin, runny, grayish discharge of BB. Um, If you actually do see the curd-like appearance, your likelihood ratio is somewhere between 6 and 130, so again, very high for a likelihood ratio. And on KOH, oftentimes you'll see branching hyphae, again, in any vaginal flora, because yeast is part of a normal healthy vagina, and two, you might see, you know, a very scattering appearance of branching hyphae, like one or two. Mm -hmm. In a a real yeast infection, you're going to see them everywhere. So you'll see quite a bit. A DNA amplification probe is very much more sensitive at 90 to 100%, but oftentimes we don't do that unless you've failed treatment and we're worried about resistance or that we've misdiagnosed in some way. Got it. And I would imagine that's probably a lot more expensive as a test yeah, to do. Yeah, and honestly, when you send off a fungal culture for a vaginal fungal culture, it takes four weeks to final results. Wow. So if someone has a really... <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not like you're going to stop your treatment plans to get that result back. If clinically you're truly concerned that they have yeast, you're going to start treating in some way and then, you know. And But if they ha- normally have candida in there, wouldn't uh, the, the yeast point. culture grow it? Um, it's usually not a high enough rate. So similarly to in skin flora, if you right. had a skin infection, you're not always going to grow staph epidermis off of someone's skin, although mm-hmm. we always know it's there, right? It's not right. always going to show up. So it's in low enough rates that oftentimes you won't get a positive fungal culture. Also, my understanding is that it's pretty hard to get the fungus to grow. That's why it takes four weeks <laughs> to come back. Uh, interesting. Huh. Okay, so another test maybe not to do very often. No. For our listeners, can you also contrast that with how trichomonas would present? I think you mentioned right. a couple things. So but. trichomonas oftentimes has a profound yellowy discharge that when you put in a speculum almost looks like urine um, and it really is more profound. The cervix is often very irritated um, so it's friable, easy to bleed when you open the speculum and usually there's irritation. It's not that intense itching of vulvovaginal candidiasis, but it's also not just the fishy odor that comes with BD, mm-hmm. somewhere in between. And then if we were doing a wet mount on those patients, 
really what we're looking for are the tiny little single cellular flagellated organisms swimming around all over the place. Trichomonads. Which are your trichomonads. (laughs) And that's 100% specific. They're really hard to see, even in people who are very good at microscopy. So in general, you have to be at at least like the 100 times magnification to see them well. (laughs) If you don't do your wet mount correctly, meaning if at any point your swabs dry out, this is why when we do a Q-tip swab, we immediately put it in saline. Uh Then they're not going to be modal anymore. If you don't have a big enough drop on your slide or you smashed them, you know, in some really aggressive way, you're probably also not going to see them moving then. And it's really easy to miss them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny, just as an aside, as I was reading the uh, JAMA Rational Clinical Examination article from 2004 on evaluation of vaginal complaints, they were talking about how the literature in this area, as common a chief complaint as vaginal symptoms are, they are very small studies and a lot of inter-observer um, variation, which hasn't really been accounted for in the literature. So we don't really even know like how one office or one group or one individual s- skill at microscopy would vary from another's. So a lot of the literature about how good microscopy is is, is variable and probably for that reason. So kind of interesting. Well, so if you didn't see the little trichomonads on your microscopy, but you describe that history and your findings of voluminous discharge and irritation of the cervix and all, um, is there another test you can do? You can. You can do a urine nucleic acid amplification test, um, or you can send it on the cervical discharge, and the sensitivity and specificity for that are 95 to 100%, so it's more reliable than our microscopy uh-huh. for certain. Right. Unless you see the trichomonads. Unless you see the so, trichomonads, and then you've hit 100%. You won the lottery then. Yeah. But if you're uh-huh. really suspicious, I would follow through with completing that workup. Okay. And how long does that take to come back? Uh, one to two days. It's similar okay. to chlamydia and gonorrhea, so it's pretty quick on okay. the turnaround. So that might even be a situation where you, not to jump yet to treatment of these things, but you might even treat the patient Correct. while you're waiting for the result if you're really suspicious for, for trichomonasis. Okay, excellent. All right, so uh, we've, we've talked briefly uh, about all three of these entities. Um, what's the treatment for each of them? I guess starting with the bacterial vaginosis because that's what the, our patient has. So if I was going to treat bacterial vaginosis, assuming that my patient didn't have alcohol use disorder, I would usually give them metronidazole, and it's 500 milligrams BID for a week. Um, You can also use higher doses for a shorter amount of time, but they're less well tolerated, so I tend to not. There's vaginal inserts as well, so you can use metronidazole gel or clindamycin gel vaginally, Mm -hmm. Um, and that just depends on if someone wants to deal with mess. Okay. (laughs) Honestly. If they're allergic to metronidazole? Then clindamycin gel would be your secondary. Okay, but not clindamycin tablets? Correct. Usually we prefer the vaginal insert. Okay, okay, good to know. And then how about uh, if they had vulvovaginal candidiasis? I think on that one it just depends on how how much someone tolerates again. So the -the over-the-counter treatments are actually really good. So meconazole over-the-counter, the the three Mm -hmm. and seven-day varieties tend to work well. Um, with the caveat that typically it burns a little bit when you insert the cream, so you have to warn your patients that it's probably going to sting some, and it's messy, I mean, to be frank. You can also do oral fluconazole, which is commonly used as a one-time dose. 
Oh, wow. That's pretty convenient. Yeah. And it, it works well? I think. It does work well. Mm-hmm. And can you use it in pregnancy, I guess, is my other big question. So the state of the affairs of pregnancy are that we don't, in general, test drugs in pregnancy for safety because of ethical concerns. In general, if someone is pregnant with a yeast infection, especially in the first trimester, we will encourage them to use the -the over-the-counter seven-day treatment. And then if that's not effective, number one, we'd make sure with exam that that was truly what we were dealing with. And then number two, fluconazole would be appropriate at that point. We try not to use it as the first line, but you can use it in pregnancy. Oh, okay. That's, That's good to know. I've seen some sources said not, and then other sources that I've looked at said yes so good literature concerning pregnant women is sparse okay for medical treatments trichomoniasis how, how would you treat that trichomoniasis actually you treat with flagell usually as well okay mm-hmm. oh. oh interesting so you're potentially treating two of these three things right but with trichomoniasis we offer partner treatment because uh, that is the only one trans- of these three that is sexually transmitted that we have discussed so for certain you would offer a partner treatment which would be different than the other two okay and just uh, mechanistically, do you have the partner come into your office or no. do you, you send no. them a prescription? Correct. Okay. We ask if they know the partner's name and date of birth in my practice. Um, mm-hmm. Not everybody probably does this, but mm-hmm. in my practice, if they have their partner's name and date of birth and I can confirm with that person that they don't have allergies, I'll just send them in a prescription. I do the same thing for chlamydia and gonorrhea because populationally you're trying to decrease the rates right. of, and spread mm-hmm. of STI. It totally makes sense. And actually, jumping back a little bit, we didn't really get into the can't-miss diagnoses so much. Um, And we should. And we definitely should, because that's part of our approach to the UCD-43. But let's start there with the the can't-miss diagnoses, and that may morph into a discussion of older women, um, or I should say... Postmenopausal. Postmenopausal, post-childbirth women. So what are the... Are there any can't-miss diagnoses for these? So I would say in a reproductive age, sexually active population, my can't miss diagnosis for vaginal discharge or pain would be PID, so pelvic inflammatory disease. Sometimes that comes with discharge, sometimes it doesn't. Almost always it comes with pain that's pretty significant. Hmm. That would be can't miss because it has such big implications in general, i.e. you can untreated can lead to tubal ovarian abscesses, which is obviously something that can end up treating in the hospital or even with drainage or surgical interventions um, and can profoundly affect fertility down the road if that's in the patient's future wishes. So in a reproductive age sexually active person, that would be my can't miss. Much more uncommon in that population would be cervical cancers for continued bleeding. But again, that usually is bleeding or postcoital bleeding. Um, and then someone who hasn't had pap smears or pap smear follow-up that was appropriate, um, or HPV testing. In a postmenopausal patient, the one thing that I do see in practice are women who have repetitively been treated over the phone for vulvovaginal candidiasis for itching and have not come in and had an exam by whoever the treating physician has been. For, for many and sundry reasons, including access to care, et cetera. So many that aren't always on the behest of the physician, those women are higher likelihood of after having failed rounds of vulvovaginal candidiasis treatment, there's a possibility that we're not looking at vulvovaginal candidiasis at all, that we're looking at something like lichen sclerosis, very rarely, um, that can be a vulvar cancer because the most common presenting symptom of vulvar cancer is persistent vaginal itching. Hmm. 
or vulvar itching. So all of those things are reasons that I would want to see someone, and that would be my can't-miss diagnosis list. Addressing the postmenopausal population, I understand there's also this, well, we used to be called atrophic vaginitis. Oh, yeah. But but what is the new term for that? The new term for that is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, GSM for short. And oftentimes, that won't necessarily present as itching, but it can present as dyspareunia. There can oftentimes be kind of a yellowish, sticky discharge associated with it. Very occasionally, some light spotting or bleeding that can be associated with it. And all of those, again, you're not going to treat that with a yeast infection medication. You're going to treat that with estrogen. So it's a completely different pathway. Okay. And not to get in too much into the weeds on it, but with like a, a local estrogen usually? With a local estrogen typically, okay. so a vaginal cream or ring or tablet are all appropriate. Okay, great. Um, did I miss anything in that population, the postmenopausal population that you wanted to comment about? There's some that are much rarer, so lichen planus, which oftentimes has bleeding ulcerative looking lesions with it and can be in the mouth as well. Hmm. That's a pretty rare diagnosis or find. There's some other vulvar skin disorders that are very specific and extremely rare. Okay. And by then we by then, long ago referred to one of you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Excellent. Good to know. This has been great. I've learned a ton from you about this topic, Jocelyn. I hadn't thought about it as much since really going back to residency in medical school because you know, I work in the hospital and we don't see a lot of patients, although we, we have a lot of patients on antibiotics and occasionally they will say to us, you know, I have a discharge and it, it often turns out to be candidiasis. But um, can you summarize a few key points that you think are important about this topic for our listeners? So I think your key takeaway points are this is a just if this is a chief complaint that someone has vaginal discharge or vaginal irritation, really history is key in diagnosis because a lot of times the patient really will tell you what's going on and be right. Um, the other big key points are if it's inflammatory looking or not, pH can actually be helpful and wet mounts are great if you can do them. I also think if someone has persistent symptoms, don't be afraid to call your friendly local gynecologist. That's what we're around for. And we're happy to diagnose the more esoteric and unusually presenting ones. I also think one thing that I see frequently, even in our own residents, people will look under a microscope and say, I think they have BV and candida. And I think if you're truly concerned about that, it's going to be unusual because yeast likes an acidic pH. So with yeast, your pH will usually be 4.5 or less. And again, bacterial vaginosis really does like a more basic pH. So it usually will be over 4.5. Usually they don't like to grow together for that reason. They appreciate a different environment. So if you're thinking that you have both, really look back at your microscopy and you know, know that a few yeast are going to be normal in any vaginal secretion sample and a few clue cells are going to be normal in any vaginal yeast or vaginal secretion sample. It's what ratios are you looking at and what are your other findings? And is there one of those that's of those two that are more common during pregnancy? Um yeast is more common during pregnancy actually because estrogen is so high in pregnancy the vaginal pH is often altered a little bit. Hmm. So in so, so the direction for yeast. Got it. That yeast likes to grow in. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. 
All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly instructive, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, get a lot out of this podcast. I appreciate it. I'll go look at the basic science part for clue cells as well to see what makes them look like furry little epithelial cells. (laughs) Sounds good, Jocelyn. Thank you. Uh